Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. What else going on up there? I know what it is. Mm-hmm. The company is broke. Yeah, what? Hmm? Where'd you hear that? From me. Today, this afternoon, I tried to order parts, and everywhere I called, they said that our credit is no good. Wow. The Sunshine Cab Company is broke. It's your fault? All of it. You did this. You couldn't just drive and be happy you had jobs. No. No. Everything had to be just so. The tires had to have treads. The brakes had to have linings. Okay, prima donnas, you got them. Now you don't have jobs. I hope you're satisfied. You finally killed the golden goose. What are we gonna do? We'll have to find ourselves other jobs. I guess we'll have to go to another cab company, huh? Hmm, not me. I'm sick of driving. I think I'm gonna take this as a sign to break away and start fresh. Yeah. Maybe losing our jobs is a blessing. Yeah. Maybe it's time to get out of the hack business. Maybe it's time for us to shed these old, lousy, nowhere jobs and find new, lousy, nowhere jobs. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Well, count me in. Okay, listen. We're all going to be out there looking for new jobs, right? And we're all going to be real curious to see what the others have come up with. So let's say in a month, we meet at Mario's. All right, all right. Terrific. We'll meet in a month, and we'll yeah. tell them about the great jobs we all have. Yeah. Okay, right, let's do it. Come on. Yeah. Hey, Luke. How did uh, Mackenzie take it? The captain? Yeah. Huh. Don't worry about him. Nothing's going to get that old buzzard down. Right now, he's upstairs brainstorming for an idea. And believe me, he'll find a way out. I wonder how long it took him to come up with that one. And that was a scene from the 70s sitcom classic Taxi, and in which joblessness is a theme that hasn't changed in the present time. And Judd Hirsch as Alex in that show is our guest this week on Arts Express to talk about another issue that hasn't changed as well, Endless Wars. In his just-released World War II drama, Resistance 1942. Also just released is the actor's turn as Steven Spielberg's coming-of-age dramatic feature, The Fablemans. Hirsch will be talking about all that and more. But first... ...to the command and to bring it to being terrible. We thank you. Hey, I got a question. How don't you, why don't you let everybody know here that Mr. Kazatsky is an open neo-Nazi, a member of the Azov Battalion, a neo-Nazi battalion... But this guy's got a, a huge amount of okay. anti-Semitic content. I've got a copy okay. here. Excuse Let's me. address it. Just address it. Was Latina Youth Movement for a People's Democracy activist Kayla Papachek being dragged out of Doc NYC School of Visual Arts Film Festival last week for protesting their celebration on stage of Azov Battalion's Dmitry Kazatsky, a swastika tattooed Ukrainian neo Nazi and contributing cinematographer of the film presented that evening, Winter on Fire and a photographer as well, notorious for snapping shots of swastika-carved pizzas, which simultaneously led to the cancellation of his photo exhibit in Barcelona. And while Kazaski being celebrated across this country, 
touring even U.S. public schools, has also been clicking likes online to posts of Hitler and the KKK. Though apparently outdone by a Ukrainian military officer who just posted online a video of a tortured, captured Russian soldier bound in rolls of plastic and placed in a coffin to be buried alive. Here's Kayla to explain what happened to her at Doc NYC and why. Now, Kayla, please tell the listeners how this all began and what happened that led you to go down that evening to the Doc NYC event. A member of Azov Battalion was going on tour throughout the United States. He received an award from Jon Stewart in Disneyland. He had spoken at a middle school to children, and he was going to be speaking at an event in New York City. I, I just to say this. I vehemently oppose Nazism. It's, it's, of course, I mean, I think we all should, but I, I, I'm very outspoken about Nazism. I used to work at a Ukrainian restaurant, and I had spoken about being against Nazism there, and I was threatened to be fired before. And not just Ukrainian Nazism, but I was talking about um, Nazism from World War II and just you know documentaries about catching Nazis. So that's just the kind of state that this is in. We're on in right now. And so when I saw that he was going to be speaking in New York and how he had not faced any opposition in Disneyland or in the middle school, I was just like, absolutely not. You can't come to a multi-ethnic international city as a Nazi and be treated like you're a hero. Somebody who's a member of Azov Battalion, an openly neo-Nazi battalion that probably has committed war crimes since 2014 against people in Donbass, and you're going to be treated like a hero in New York? Absolutely not. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to going there. So I decided that I had to go. And, yeah, I, I went by myself. I did it. I already have a ticket. I, I got that Thursday night. And I just waited for what I felt like was an opportune time to speak up and show this man and show these people that, New York City is not just going to sit by and idly watch Nazis get praised, people who have uh, swastika tattoos get treated like heroes. This is a very working class, uh, black and brown, international city, and a lot of us oppose Nazism, a lot of us oppose fascism, and we're not going to be brainwashed by propaganda. And what happened to you when you went in there? Yes, okay, so like I said, I I did go by myself. Um, I was nervous, but, you know... I think this is, it's more important than um, me or even him. Just the fact that there is a Nazi who's being invited to speak in New York City, it just blows my mind. So I, I went, I sat down, sort of kind of um, off to the side. I didn't want to, you know, bring too much attention because I did arrive a little late. Um, but I did sat, sit down pretty close to the stage as much as I could. And I watched the film, watched the ending. Everybody stood up and gave a round of applause to Azov Battalion. Um, and of course, this documentary, you know, they, they don't talk about their political ideology. They just talk about them fighting the Russians. And so it makes them look very good. You know, you want to sympathize with them. Nobody wants to support an evil side or a Nazi side, but that's what propaganda does. It shows you that um, it hides the ideology or it makes it look normal or it makes it look palatable. So everyone stands up. And then they introduce Apinevsky to the stage. He gives a little speech. And very interestingly enough, I do want to say this, there was pushback to Kozakski, the Nazi, on, um, on Twitter days prior. So what Doc NYC had done was remove his name from the description. Now, when I bought my tickets Thursday evening, his name was there. But when we had checked on Monday morning, his name was not there. Mm-hmm. It just said that the filmmakers will be uh, speaking. Yeah. So, and I had known that he was a filmmaker, so I wasn't certain if he was going to be speaking or not, but I did take that chance. And it turns out that when Afinevsky introduced him as this as this Azov Battalion hero, it just showed to me that Doc NYC had seen the claims made against him, had seen the photos that he had posted, had seen his tattoo, and still decided that they were going to host him. They were just going to protect his identity instead. So he goes onto the stage, and they speak for a little bit, and I wait till the presenter's over, and that's when I was just like, okay, just just do it now. I don't want to wait and hear more of this nonsense. Just do it now. So I just get up, 
And I hold my phone and I just start, you know, shouting that this man is a Nazi. He is part of Azal Battalion, which is a Nazi battalion. He has been in Azal Battalion since he was 2015. So he has likely participated in the war crimes against the civilians of Donbass, the 14,000 civilians that have been killed, uh, 80% of them because of the Ukrainian army. So he is not somebody that we should be celebrating. And it is disgusting that we're being propagandized and Doc NYC should be ashamed of itself because it, it, it's one thing if you unknowingly support somebody who has such heinous, anti-human, racist pol- politics, but it's another thing when you go out of your way to protect them, when you go out of your way to keep everything safe. As soon as I started speaking, Two men immediately came up to me and like grabbed me and they were, one of them was like hitting, hitting my phone. That's why you see in the video, I'm moving a lot because he's trying to block me off. And one man is behind me. Another man is in front of me, pushing me out. The crowd starts calling me a Kremlin shill. They call me, I don't know if you can say this on the radio, but the B word. Um, they just, but I, at that moment, I wasn't paying attention to anything. I wasn't even paying attention to the men. Um, you know, grabbing me and touching me. I was just paying attention to making sure that I was getting my message out there for as long as possible and letting people know who this man is. And I don't think that, I mean, if you saw the video, you see that a lot of people were yelling at me. A lot of people were not happy with what I had to say. But on the flip side, I do hope that there were at least a couple of people in the audience who, after hearing what I had to say, maybe ask questions. Why is she calling him a Nazi? Why are they having these accusations? And then start critically thinking about who we're being told are heroes and freedom fighters, because this is like the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq all over again. These are the heroes. These are the freedom fighters. They just have swastika tattoos. So Doc NYC was prepared. (laughs) They protected him and they got me out very quickly. Now, this new form of protest showing up at events and where government officials and politicians are speaking and shouting at them in contrast to traditional mass protests, what are your thoughts about why this new style of protest is growing and what effects you see happening? Well, there's a couple things. I, you know, there's one way, you, like you said, it. you go have this mass protest out in front in the building or, you know, wherever have you. And I think that generally both of them should be combined. Uh, one having like, I guess you'd call it heckling, right? Going inside and heckling them. And another one, um, people outside. I think that would be a great effective way. Like I said, though, unfortunately, no one was available this Sunday evening, um, but that would have been ideal. But the reason why I think uh, going in there and yelling at them and, and raising noise in there, personally, why I think it's the, a, a, a great method is it does one of two things. First, it confronts the people. You put them on the spot. It's not like they have time to prepare and maybe behind the scenes or behind closed doors, safe from the protesters, they can talk and, you know, give their point of view to the crowd. It puts them right in the middle and they have to come and address what you have to say or, you know, either way, whatever they respond with is going to really show, you know, how they feel, what they have to say about that. It's going to be the most honest. If they address you or not, that is an answer in and of itself. Or they throw you out, it's an answer in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Whatever they have to say, however they respond. So that's one thing. Another way that I think that it's it's useful is that it also disrupts, you know, whatever they have going on, whatever whatever they were saying. Like we were, you know, I'm saying, they're saying, okay, he's a freedom fighter. He's a hero. I go in there and say, no, he's not. He's a Nazi. That conversation is how it's going to follow. It's going to be very different from, you know, the way that it was before where they were just praising him and just, you know, kissing his butt. It's going to be different. And another way that I think it's useful is that it also gets people, for example, there was a gentleman who had heckled AOC. Now, I think this one applies to more of his situation than mine, but there are people in the crowd who maybe are there for a completely different reason, but then they hear, why are you sending billions of dollars to Nazis in Ukraine? Maybe this will be the first time this person has ever heard that. Mm. Maybe they're not going to immediately know the situation. They're not going to immediately believe that there's Nazis in Ukraine or have an opinion, but it plants the seeds for them to be able to later start asking questions. You know, without having that moment to hear somebody say that, to see somebody go so far as to shout at a politician to do that, it might make them to start asking some questions. And that is, that is the most important thing. We're not here to convince everybody right away and, or impose our views. 
but at least to get people to start asking the right questions so they can make their own informed opinion. Mm -hmm. Because right now, people aren't doing that. We're just being fed a narrative to believe. And who do you think is behind sponsoring him? Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of different forces that are supporting him. The Ukrainian-American community and their organization has been around since uh, mostly really taking flight after the 50s. They did exist, of course, there were... Um, you know, Ukrainian Jewish people that were leaving the programs from the, the czars. But those were, that was the first wave. The second wave is where you start to see a lot of these right-wing nationalist Ukrainians leave after World War II and come to New York City, like Mikola Levin, who was a literal Nazi who had ordered the murder of Jews. He was helped by the CIA to come into New York City and start a research and publishing group that would post uh, anti-Soviet propaganda and also work on uh, U.S. Ukraine policy initiatives. So there is a there's a long history of organizations that support his nationalist efforts. But this is you know there was one organization in particular. I, I I'm not going to say the name, but they had a protest where people were chanting Azov, 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 and like in March or April here in New York City. So there there is unfortunately a sizable support of these ultra nationalists in Ukrainian Americans civil society and organizations. And I imagine that they are the ones that are behind getting them over, treating them like they're freedom fighters and these great war heroes, giving them places to stay, getting them speaking appearances. Um, the director who was there, Evgeny Afganevsky, he also created Winter on Fire, which was on Netflix, and you know, admitted to having downplayed the role of the far right. And he does it again. He does it again by bringing this Azov, not even bringing him, but actually making a documentary with him. Because Dmitry Kozatsky is one of the one of the cinematographers of that very documentary, Freedom on Fire, that was screened on Sunday. So there's just a lot of collaboration with, you know, so-called pro-democracy and pro-human rights organizations that are, you know, also pro-Western that have deep ties and deep history to the Ukrainian far right, the nationalists who collaborated since the Holocaust. And any last word about that Doc NYC protest and your hopes for its impact, along with other similar event protests happening now and in the future? Well, I think that, you know, they're going to possibly follow the line of oh, I'm a Kremlin shill, or I'm a Putin propagandist, or uh, what this guy, this Nazi said later was that it was just a joke. He was all those things that he said that were pro-Hitler and pro-Nazi. It was just a joke because he was making fun of the Russian propaganda that there's Nazis in Ukraine. If they're going to follow along with that and believe that, I mean, listen, I have a bridge to sell you, then you can call me. <laughs> but but um, I think it's reprehensible that not only have they gone to certain lengths to protect a man that has a swastika tattoo, and they can believe whatever lines he has to say, that is a swastika, or a man who has posted pictures of Hitler, of uh, other in swastikas, made a swastika cake, and is also part of the Azov Battalion. If they want to believe all their lives, I think it's absolutely reprehensible, and they have no, you know, no business trying to represent our city or even... And it's so sad, because this is, this is the largest film festival and I had actually wanted to go to see the Assange film. Um, there's very good things that, that can come out of festivals like these to create art for people to have discussions. And it's just a shame that they refuse to even make a statement about it. They refuse to even address it. Mm. And what they have done is they've brought a Nazi into our community and normalized him. I don't think you know, we understand the gravity of how horrible that is. Again, thinking about the, the ethnic and racial makeup of New York City, this is a very Jewish city, a very black city, a very Hispanic city. And you brought somebody who was a white supremacist who has killed people. That's, that's awful. And, and to not even address that, to go to lengths and protect him, I'm disappointed. And I don't think that they represent our New York community. Okay. Thank you, Kayla Popacek, for calling in. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. And coming up next on Arts Express. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. You can't just love something, you also have to take care of it. It'll tear you in two. You stop making movies, it'll break your mother's heart. 
those were scenes from The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's biographical coming-of-age drama in which Judd Hirsch portrays his mysterious Uncle Boris, a key figure in his life to whom he attributed becoming inspired to be a filmmaker in the first place. The veteran actor also currently stars in the World War II drama Resistance 1942, in which he plays a French Jew on the run. Likewise, somewhat of a main character in the film is Radio, back then the vanguard leader in mass movement communication and rebellion prior to the advent of the Internet that has followed. First, some scenes from Resistance 1942, then Judd Hirsch. Good evening, my friends. I pray you are well. For three years we have ducked, dodged, and cheated the machinations of the Nazi's evil empire. Have you triangulated the broadcast signal yet? I'm afraid not, sir. The broadcast continues to be too short. Why do you follow the Führer? We, the foreigners and the Jews, the weak and the infirm. But I need to get out of this godforsaken country. Let's we all stay here. We're all gonna die. We will not rest until this man has been captured. We are all being hunted. There are others out there who are kin to you, sharing in your burdens, delighting in your victories, keeping the flame of hope alight. Stay safe, my friends. You have to help us. The cities and towns we once called home have turned against us. You are not alone in this battle. In the face of impossible odds, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. Yes. Hello, Judd Hirsch, and welcome to our show. What was it about Resistance 1942, this film and this story, that got you on board? Well, the two guys who did it, they had this idea for some strange reason. They thought that um, that I was the right guy for this. And um, I said, why don't you come over? Uh, it, it sounds interesting. <laughs> so they, they, they came over to my house and uh, just sat there and talked to me about this movie. And I said, I was brought up not only watching movies about the Second World War, but I was brought up during the Second World War, you know. So all of that uh, feeling about the French resistance and uh, everything that was happening from the beginning of the war, 41 on, I was pretty much a witness to, and even though I was maybe about 10 years old, okay? But actually, that was the beginning of... uh, my life as well as it was a number of people. So I kind of remembered a lot of stuff. And um, I thought myself very lucky that I wasn't in Europe, <laughs> that I was born here, yeah. that I wasn't born in, in Germany, and that I wasn't. And I always marveled at the idea that we can only know through the stories that we hear in the news and whatnot that what's going, you know, the, 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 tr- the true suffering, the, the, the real horror. And it stuck with me right up to today, by the way. Uh, and I, I just thought I've never been given a chance to be part of that. And when I read the movie, I thought kind of perfect, perfect time. I don't know what it, what it was, but I was always taken by the, and I'm talking about emotionally, by any war film ab- about the uh, uh, the Nazi invasion in, in Europe. Mm. So I was hooked. Now, this is not the first time you've played anti-government characters. You are an anti-Vietnam protester in Running on Empty, which also starred the late River Phoenix and number three RS. What can you say about what draws you to protest films and characters? Well, I don't know whether I was in that many protest films, but, (laughs) uh, you know, when you kind of live in that circumstance and then we're all present tense, you're drawn to the idea of uh, why... Uh, uh, you know, I was drawn to the idea of why on the other side everything was happening because, you know, I was a young man um, during that whole thing and I wasn't wasn't young enough to be drafted or anything like that. But I'm a New Yorker 
And um, a lot of that stuff happened in the East, right where I was. It was in my neighborhood. It was, right in, you know, right down the street. And it was, you know, 12th Street in Manhattan. And it was, it was so current that everybody had a side to take. Mm-hmm. Mine was to understand. Mine was to understand what, what, whatever the other side was, whatever the, you know, uh, movement was. And I guess if you lived through a thing called Woodstock, <laughs> you were already um, in that changeable world about where the young, the youth, youth of America took took place. It was the first time, by the way, at that time that there was, that the number of people from between the ages of 17, 18, and 35 were that great. The percentage of the population was that great. So my set of mind was formed by being right there, you know? Yeah. Uh, actually, I I lived near Woodstock, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where you can say the whole musical protest moment pretty much came to a head, right? Yeah. It was all about why ever did war ever happen, yeah. you know? I mean, still, we don't understand it right now. Yeah. We're living through a time right now which is... I must say, it seems like when the world never seems to learn its lesson, or at least part of it, mm. and um, we're we're always having to fight something. You know, I feel like that myself right now. Now mm. that this whole thing about uh, Ukraine is going on, yeah. uh, I mean, um, these things get get more meaningful if it, if you see them again. You'll see. I mean, see any of these any of this stuff about the Second World War. I would wonder right now. It sounds like we're still in it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you've opened in another film this month as well, The Fablemans. What drew you to that Steven Spielberg personal coming of age story? He did. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, once again, um, I talked from a European point of view. He actually said that I, and pretty much the only thing he said was that the character I was to play was somebody he rarely met but changed his life mm. and made him become a director. Yeah. It's quite a direction. And I thought, okay, uh, let's see. And I had, uh, before we, I hadn't read the script yet. I thought, oh, okay, that's going to be somebody, you know, like another producer or a director or somebody in the business that's come to him and done something. Then I read the script. And I said, Holy cow. This isn't anything what I thought it would be. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's an old uncle, you know, oh. and he's come from who knows where. <laughs> uh, I mean, his, the least of, all, of everything he told me was the most of what I had to play, which was he might have come from the Ukraine. He didn't seem to have known uh, how he never, he never could quite make out what the man was saying, even though he said you could play without an accent or with an accent. Now, I wondered until I read the script and I said, there's no way to play this without an accent. This guy comes from Europe. This guy comes from from Russia. This guy is has a Yiddish background and and speaks that language. And also, um, you've never met one. You've never met. The, in other words, it sounds like an outlier from the family. And and so I did. There was nobody for me to become familiar with as far as who they were in the family. I mean, so I'm playing an effect on on Steven Spielberg, mm. all right? Yeah. So that's as much information as I got. This is what you do. You come and make me become a, a director, all right? <laughs> Take it from there. <laughs> Took a chance. Now, you've been described no less in Resistance 1942 as known for, quote, playing cranky, ill-tempered characters. What are your thoughts about that, and how would you compare that characterization with who you are in real life? Well, I wouldn't say that <laughs> I make ill-tempered people. No, no. I don't know if you've ever seen Taxi, but that wasn't an ill-tempered person. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. It's a bad, bad description. I don't pay attention to that stuff. It's when given a part to be that way. Sure, why not? Yeah, as long as as long as the story's good enough. And, the ill-temperedness of the man in uh, Resistance 42 is not an ill-tempered person. It's a desperate individual mm. who believes he's going to die at the hands of the Nazis. Yeah. 
And um, if you look at his desperation, it's he he would rather kill all of them uh, and take them with him, and which is the, which is the high point of that that movie for me, uh, for my character. And um, I was um, so glad that they that I had the opportunity to do that expression. Remember, he's a guy that simply is frightened, can't do anything except run, and is really tired of running. And whose wife is sick, and you know what I mean. He, it, where I am is in that desperate moment, mm. more desperate than probably anybody in the movie. Yeah. Um, so we, I mean, and 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 you you can realize where it comes from. It comes from that that uh, ancient Jewish place. Mm. You know, yeah. it's like the whole history of what happened to the Jews is in the movie. <laughs> in my character, they're going to kill us. Okay. What yeah. And what are your thoughts looking back on that enduring classic sitcom, Taxi, as Alex, and what that show has meant to you? Well, it was a great uh, opportunity. You know, uh, I had always considered myself as a uh, um, a, 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 a comic uh, person, comic actor. And, uh, and and when those experiences were, when, when, I could, when, when I could get there that way, I was very happy. I mean... Um, uh, I don't know whether you know that, that it was de- I was destined to play something like that or be in something like that, but I sure I sure hoped I would. You know, uh, it was it was just an opportunity. I had to get I had to get to California. I had to get to Hollywood in order to even be offered anything like that. And uh, it was kind of I don't know. Um, I guess lucky. I had gone up one time. This is what had really happened. I got up one time. Somebody called me in New York and said, uh, uh, and had 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 a a, um, a two and a half hour television movie that was being done by Universal called The Law. They hadn't cast it yet, and they wanted someone for the lead. And uh, so they got me somewhere in New York. I must have fit fit the description, and said, "Read this." I read it. They said, "You him, yes." And in the same office, which is at Europe, which was Universal in New York. Uh, they just had introduced me to people in the office just for the sake of saying, you know, say hello. Mm. And and one of them was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He happened to be sitting in a little office <laughs> with Jaws on his desk. Ah. <laughs> and he was about 24 or something like that. And I was about 30-something. And I just waved at him. I didn't know who he was. woman leaned over and said, and whispered in my ear, He's going to be very big. <laughs> and and, and he was practically, I mean, really, that was, he was unknown. And I waved at him, and he waved at me. And I, you know, just to say hello. I was just this off-off-Broadway actor who they somehow found. Mm. And for that one day, I met Steven Spielberg. Fifty years later, he calls me and asks me to play this part in his movie, in his life. Interesting, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. And one last question. Any last word on Resistance 1942, its significance dramatically and historically in the world of endless wars we live in today, and younger American generations born into a world of wars where there has never been a time of peace in their lives? Yeah, I know. I, um, I have those. I, I, that's me. I, I thought about, about that a long time. Remember, I like a lot of people, was a lot of, well, not like a lot of people, but I was actually born just before the Second World War. Mm. Lived through it all. Lived through Vietnam. Lived through Korea. Uh, And uh, it was always that we were at war. And somehow I always thought that each one of, when each one is over, it's like, it's like that old story after the First World War. This, uh, it was like war to end all wars. Mm. Well, that was baloney. (laughs) (laughs) That turned out to be baloney. So somehow, I don't know. This civilization doesn't doesn't learn its lesson because there's always some evil thing hanging out, you know, uh, in the background of. of uh, and, I don't know. Civilization maybe not be may may not be old enough. You know, <laughs> it, we got to go a couple of more million years uh, to to understand that we're all in the same. We we all live in the same planet. Yeah. Uh, you got go take a look take a look at how civilization started you'll pretty much understand they were just a bunch of people running around trying to find food and and survive 
That's how it was, right? Then they became uh, cognizant of each other and how different they they thought they were. You know, uh, you go back a few thousand years, and you'll find out that there was a difference. You know, the people in China did not look like the people in Europe, and but they were all the same, yeah. and they hadn't met each other yet. So um, there's always fear. You know. I guess it's just a fearful place to live. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Judd Hirsch, for calling in. <laughs> Goodbye, Prairie. Bye. And Resistance 1942 and The Fablemans are just out now in release. Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. Express. Any course can be taken as the right course to take, but no course like that can be the course taken always. Any name can be named to determine what is or should be, but no name like that can be what determines them always. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. What you've just heard are the opening lines of one of the oldest pieces of literature known, the Tao Te Ching. Aside from the Bible, it's also probably the most translated piece of literature known written in about 400 BC, sometimes translated in English as the way of the Tao or the way and its power. Myth ascribes the origin of the Tao Te Ching as the creation of a certain Lao Dan. He was an elder statesman who, disgusted with the politicians of the Zhao dynasty, decides to leave the royal court, but is stopped on his way out of the city by a guardian who demands that in return for safe passage out of the city, Laodan must tell the guardian all his wisdom. Well, under duress, Laodan dashes off the 5,000 lines of the Dao De Jing, even while insisting that this is stupid, such wisdom can't be captured in words. And that supposedly is the origin of the Tao Te Ching, even though there's no evidence to support it. Now, in a new translation by Brook Zipporin, that is transliterated as the Dao De Jing, and I'll spell that because I don't speak Chinese. D-A-O-D-E-J-I-N-G. English readers can get some new insight into this provocative and ambiguous classic, which I'll be reading from. But a few notes first. If you've never encountered the Tao Te Ching, you may find it startlingly modern with its dialectical view of the world of all things being composed of opposites. In the illuminating translator's note and introduction, Brooke Zipporin points out how much of the Tao Te Ching takes certain pairs of opposite attributes like hard versus soft, strong versus weak, doing versus non-doing, and just completely upends the common notion of which of those attributes are the most desirable. One of the most striking aspects of Zipporin's new translation is that he thinks the idea that the Tao Te Ching was written by one person ignores all the contradictions and differences in the style of different portions of the text that previous translators have tried to smooth over and make more consistent. Rather, in a very uh, funny, felicitous comparison, Zipporin writes, it's more useful to understand the Tao Te Ching 
more as a thread on an internet forum where many contribute to the conversation. One poster responding to another, sometimes amplifying, sometimes contradicting the previous poster, but all posting on the same general topic. But what that view implies is that the meaning of the Tao Te Ching resides not only in any one of its 81 individual passages, but also in the dialectical bouncing back and forth among the passages where opposite views engender a synthesis in the mind of the reader. And now some selections from the Tao Te Ching translated by Brooke Saporin. I'll give the number of the passage before each one. Two, when all in the world know the beautiful to be beautiful, there already is the ugly. When all know the good to be good, there already is the bad. Just so do presence and absence generate each other, difficult and easy complete each other long and short contrast each other, high and low collapse each other, tone and noise harmonize each other, ahead and behind follow each other. This is why the sage abides in the work of non-doing, practicing the teaching of non-instruction. Through this, the 10,000 things arise none declining it and none declined. Through this, all get their birth and have their life, none possessing it and none possessed. Through this, all move and act and become, none counting on it and none it counts on. For its achievements complete, it claims no credit, never dwelling on its finished works and precisely because never dwelling, never gone. Seven, heaven long endures, earth long persists. Why can heaven so long endure, earth so long persist? It is because they do not live themselves that they teem so enduringly with life. Just so does the sage put himself behind, but finds himself ahead, cast himself out, but find himself still there. Is it not precisely because he has no private interests that all his private interests are fulfilled? Nine. Better to stop short than to fill up all the way. A blade polished keen cannot be long preserved. When gold and jade fill the hall, no one can defend them. Wealth and rank hoarded with arrogance call forth their own reproach. To retreat once the work is done, that is the course of heaven. 13. Being favored as much as being disgraced should come as a terrible shock. But great calamity should be value exactly as much as one's own body. Why should being favored come as a terrible shock just as much as being disgraced? To be favored is to be subordinated. To gain it is one shock, to lose it will be another. That is why being favored, as much as being disgraced, should come as a terrible shock. Why should great calamity be valued exactly as much as one's own body? It is owning a body that makes us subject to calamities. If we possessed no body of our own, what calamity could we have? So it is that one whose valuing lies in regarding his own body as the entirety of the world may be entrusted with the world. And one whose cherishing lies in regarding his own body as the entirety of the world 
may be given charge of the world. 29. Every attempt to seize the world and control it shows us that it simply cannot be done. The world cannot be stopped. The world is a numinous vessel beyond anyone's making, beyond anyone's control. To control it is to wreck it. To hold it is to lose it. Things in this world sometimes lead and sometimes follow. Sometimes blow warm and sometimes cold. Sometimes stand mighty and sometimes fall frail. Sometimes crush and sometimes are crushed. So it is that the sage avoids excess, avoids extravagance, avoids greatness. 42. The course generates continuities. Continuities generate polarities. Polarities generate triplicities. Triplicities generate the 10,000 things. All the 10,000 things bear the darkness of shadows on their backs as they hug the brightness of sunlight to their breasts. And in the intermingling of these two energies, all their harmonies are formed. Being orphaned, widowed, destitute is what everyone most detests. But kings and princes describe themselves using just these words. Just so are things sometimes increased by diminishment, sometimes diminished by increasement. What others teach, we also teach. The violent never die a natural death, and the strong bridging must never be destroyed. We have made this the father of all our teachings. 49. The sage, steadfast in having no intentions of his own, takes all the people's intentions as his own. I regard the good as good, but I also regard the not good as good. For virtuosity is to be good at finding them all good. I trust the trustworthy, but I also trust the untrustworthy. For virtuosity is to remain trustworthy in finding them all trustworthy. The sage goes through the world breathing all of it in absorbing each and all, the mixer and the melder of all the world's intentions. As all the people come pouring into his ears and his eyes, a smile comes to the face of the sage, the dawning recognition of a child. 76. People are weak and soft, when born, strong in heart when dead. All things, even grasses and trees, are soft and fragile when born, but dried out and rigid when dead. So it is that the hard and strong are followers of death, while the soft and weak are followers of life. And so it is that when any weapon grows too strong, it ceases to be the victorious one. As a strong tree is the one chopped down by weapons to make weapons. The great and strong take their place below, the soft and weak above. 81. 
True words are not beautiful. Beautiful words are not true. The skilled do not dispute. Disputants are not skilled. The wise are not learned. The learned are not wise. The sage is one who accumulates nothing. Having used all he has for others, he finds his own self enhanced. Having given all he has to others, he finds his own self enriched. For to benefit some one thing, yet without harming any other, that is the course of heaven. And to take action for some one purpose, yet without striving against any other, that is the course of the sage. You've been listening to my reading of a selection from a new translation of the Tao Te Ching, that's D-A-O-D-E-J-I-N-G, by Brooke Zaporin, published by Liverite Publishing Corporation, a division of W.W. Norton. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.